Welcome to the South Explore Podcast. It's the Banners Broadcast, which is the official podcast of SouthExplore.com. I'm Bobby Manning, and today we're getting in and out because Game 5 is tomorrow. It's a 2-2 series. Last time we talked to you, Justin Rowan was on the program saying this was not over, and woo, was he right? I'll give it to him. His series prediction was way off, but... We saw this thing flip 180 in Cleveland to the point where I'll argue this. The Celtics were outcoached in Cleveland between the Tristan Thompson adjustment, the screens, how LeBron was taking advantage of them on those over and over again. And it drove me crazy how the Celtics went counter with bigger lineups. At least try it for extended periods of time when it was starting to show some success. Aaron Baines, to me, had momentum plays in game four to the point where he was on the free throw line after a nice offensive rebound and foul. It seemed like with Marcus Morris sitting on the sideline with five fouls that Stevens was ready to pull Baines off the free throw line. Then shortly after, of course, he went in. It was a good second quarter stretch, too, where he switched on LeBron and held his own there. Now, a terrible stretch followed that we're going to talk about where Terry Roger gets thrown off on a switch and he has to chase around Kyle Korver the corner, make up a large distance after the Celtics try to get out of those switches on Roger. They're in a very tough matchup place right now. Cleveland's role players are hitting. LeBron James has felt it out. We know that for a fact now. So we're going to try to figure this out. To me, this series... Is in the Cavaliers' hands now. There's so much more pressure on Boston after losing that 2-0 advantage, making this a series where they're going to have to win on their own home court. And the amount of pressure that's on their defense is immense because they aren't going to win a shootout with this Cleveland team. There's no way around it. They have to play lockdown defense. They can't be turned over the ball. Game four, Cleveland turned the ball over way more than Boston. Didn't matter, just because of the offensive explosion that the Cavaliers are in the midst of. Game three, I didn't like Arshon Yabusoy being in there early. Did not like to see Greg Monroe in that game, especially with the numerous attributes to his game that make you very hesitant about him standing in the lane against LeBron James. And that game went the way you'd expect it to with those guys getting in that early. Game three was a 30-point loss. Boston had his chances. And I'll give Stevens a chance to bounce back. But the way those switches went, the way the defense looked, and not turning the Baines, even though it seemed like he was giving them a little bit of something in game four, while Tristan Thompson continues to dominate them on the defensive and offensive boards and greens, they need a bounce back. On the coaching sideline, on the court, it'll be tough. The Boston Celtics have never lost a series leading 2-0. And they're on the verge of it now if they continue to give away these games. Back in Boston with a 9-0. That turns out good. Let's talk to Jared Weiss of The Athletic, formerly of Celtics blog, who's going to try to take us inside some of the issues they faced in Cleveland. Try to give us some solutions. Bill Sy wrote about some of the issues that Boston's faced as well. Go check that out, Celtics blog. I'll have something on Aaron Baines tomorrow before Game 5, or today when this is released. Be sure to subscribe to the Banners broadcast. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on the CLNS Media mobile app. Jared wrote about those Roger screens on The Athletic, so let's talk to him about that and a bunch of other topics right now. And here he is, as promised... 
Jared Weiss of The Athletic, usually uh, wearing a fancy hat of some sort, a furry hat. I don't know what he's wearing tonight because we don't have him on camera, but what are you wearing, Jared? I literally am shaving my head as we speak. <laughs> All right. So elsewhere, the Warriors and Rockets are getting underway, and I want to know, would you rather be the Celtics right now or the Rockets right now? I don't think this is a very hard question, but... This kind of feels like one of those, like, would you rather be one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? Yeah, I'd rather be that horse-sized duck, which I would call the Celtics. I'd rather be them because I think that, one, they're obviously, as of our recording before the end of this game, uh, Rockets Warriors, they are in the driver's seat, so to speak, in that they are tied and have home court advantage. I don't really know if you can really say they're in the driver's seat because they're going against LeBron, but... I mean, you know, the last two games went really poorly for them, but there's been enough evidence over the course of the playoffs to feel that they've demonstrated pretty clearly that their offense is significantly better at home. So I like their chances of really turning things around at home here and playing out the full court advantage, which would mean that they would win it while the Rockets just don't have they don't have that luxury as of now. But we'll you know, obviously we'll see how it is when they uh, by the time people are probably listening to this. But as of our recording, the Warriors are up 12 nothing in the first quarter. So, <laughs> With no Andre Iguodala, as we know. So even a break going their way isn't helping Houston very much. I didn't think we'd be saying that coming into the playoffs, though. So I, I started off with that just to see how funny and weird this postseason has gone. Predictable, though. Even though the Warriors had plus odds to win it all this year, I probably should have taken that and paid off college now that uh, <laughs> gambling is legal. I think I could have cashed in on that one a little bit. But I'll ask you this. Have you ever seen Kyle Korver record two blocks in a game as he did in Game 4? Because that was the visual that I came away with just stunned out of Game 4. Because even though it wasn't the 30-point groping that game three was game four was frustrating to say the least because i don't know how you feel about it but i think steven's got a little bit out coached in cleveland just with the matchups with the adjustments and how game three had gone and the way it slipped into game four with an even worse first quarter to bring it back to the question i asked have you seen corvid record two blocks in a game because i can't get off of that I think if you ran a million NBA 2K simulations, I don't think Corver would record two blocks in a single one of those. He must be, I, I assume, I haven't played 2K in forever. I assume it's like a 0 to 99 rating system. Yep. He's probably a negative one in blocks in shot blocking. So that was amazing. Uh, and, you know, they, Cleveland is showing that their defense can step up in ways that we didn't expect it to, that yep. individual defenders have been stepping up in ways that was surprising. You know, it's not surprising to see LeBron's intensity hit another level, see his awareness hit another level. But the fact that they got guys like Corver that are making some exciting individual playmaking stuff, I, I think that's really huge for them. Yeah, George Hill, too, has stepped up immensely. Jeff Green, not so much, but they definitely have more of a role player presence in Cleveland than it has been. Now, we're hearing all these different cliches thrown around. Maybe the cliches are true. Sometimes they are, but Boston's 1-6 on the road now. It hasn't gone well for them in most of the games. They've been blown out a handful of times uh, between those seven games now. Is it just young players on the road not executing the same way they do at home? Is it as simple as that, or is there more of a nuanced issue going on here? 
I think there's a nuance to the fact that Tristan Thompson's been really effective as a defender, and Cleveland, I think, is they've been good in uh, you know good in half court on offense, uh, and that's been I think taking some of the rhythm out of the Celtics. So those things have hurt them, but really, I think a lot of it just comes down to that. It looks like Rozier and Brown and occasionally Tatum are forcing it on offense, and they, you know, Brad has said this a couple times in the last couple of days that they keep looking like they're trying to hit home runs every single time that they fail. The next time they're coming down and trying to hit a home run, and that's just kind of it's a double whammy situation there. So considering that and then going back to Thompson he's done such a good job on Al Horford Al Horford has not really been a playmaker in these last two games here and their offense has really suffered because of it he just hasn't seemed to have the comfort level or the freedom to move and and be that playmaker and attack from the perimeter like he has and obviously post-ups he's been good against Kevin Love but not against Thompson so I would say that limiting Horford's Horford's freedom on the ball has probably increase the amount of like kind of increase the pressure on the younger guys and the younger the younger guys have struggled to capitalize yeah the the, the distribution whether it's Roger Smart or Horford hasn't been as crisp on the road I, that's something I'd point to as well and I did want to get into that Thompson uh, Horford matchup because I remember Ty Lu sitting in the garden just laughing <laughs> and like patting himself on the back going into game two at how easy of an adjustment throwing Thompson in there was going to be and to his credit it worked wonders and that matchup continues to be a issue for Horford I, I we asked him about it at one of the practices and he said Thompson being in there doesn't really change too much about how he approaches this but it's clear that the numbers point to there being a little bit of a mismatch there in that matchup for Horford is is it size is it physicality because I don't think we've seen anyone really have Horford's number the way Thompson seems to I think it's both the fact that he has the physicality to really put pressure on Horford and he's just such a menace on offensive rebounds that that's uh that's probably just kind of created a little bit of a defeated mentality somewhat there but you know what Horford he went five for 13 in game four and he had one assist the one assist I think is the most glaring part there but I mean if you just look at Horford's shots like the uh, first one was he was posting up Thompson and he had to really bang with Thompson ends up missing a layup that he probably should have hit. Then the second shot is he steps in from the top of the key and he misses a 18 footer that wasn't really contested. Next shot, he's posting up Jeff Green and misses a turnaround shot. He, he had a couple of finishes at the rim and then missed almost everything else that he took outside of the rim. So he just seems like he's a little bit out of rhythm, frankly, uh, at least while he was out there in Cleveland. I mean, there was one play where he got a wide open three off of a pin down from Marcus Smart, and he missed that shot. And, like, that's the kind of shot that you really expect him to get. Now, I know he followed it up later with a pick and pop that he was able to hit it. That ended up being the only three that he hit on the night. But he just he never really seemed like he was in a shooting rhythm in this game. Yeah, and he he is down on the low end of 30% on the road. You see all these numbers dip on the road, which isn't stunning, but a big reason that they are 1-6 and on the road, it seems like. The percentages aren't carrying over. But in this series in particular, throw the Bucks one out the window, throw the 76ers one out the window. Those have already been won, even though Joel Embiid's chiming in. We hear him (laughs) from very far away with his Never stop talking trash. Yep. (laughs) On Aaron Baines. We're going to get to him in just a minute. But in this series in particular... 
You look at the numbers, the Celtics are still putting up enough offense to where if they held Cleveland to the scoring totals that they did in games one and two, they would have won games three and four, I believe. So it's it's defense. I, I point to defense. I'm not sure if you disagree on that, but we saw what LeBron has done to Terry Rozier, and you wrote about it on The Athletic today. That, that's been a menace to them. And you look at game four in particular – LeBron shot 4-4 against Roger, 9 points, and the Celtics lose by 9. So how telling is that? Is Boston going to be able to get out of this? Does it come down to fighting through screens and not just switching easily? Because reading through that piece, it seemed to be, uh, it seemed like Brad Stevens would rather have the guys in position, switch right away, and get into it than fight it. And that just didn't seem to work in Cleveland. Well, so that, you know, I was saying that that's a problem during the game. And then after the game, Brad came out and said that he felt that some of those times that they didn't, that they let the mismatch happen and they didn't fight to avoid it. And I think teams, when they're in a switching scheme, especially against someone like LeBron, they get tired and frustrated of having to try to fight to prevent the switch every single time. And so, you know, maybe early in the game, they're just going to auto switch it. As That's a phrase I like to use that Brad once looked at me like I'm an idiot when I tried to use it. But like, this is, that's what auto switching is. Or switching switching is when you can't get over the screen, you can't fight to redirect a screen, and you have to switch. Auto-switching is you see the screen, and the guy on the ball just pulls off right away and just, and just prepares for the other guy to jump in and switch. So that's what I call auto-switch. And they auto-switched at the beginning of the game, I think, and that's something that you expect, and that makes sense. But later in the game, you'd want to fight and not allow them to just get on Rogier whenever they want. And... And that's not Rozier's fault. That's the guy who's defending LeBron. I, I put that on them. And Stevens admitted that he felt that they kind of let that happen a little too easily. And my, my feeling is that, you know, you want to switch. You want to take a second to read to see if you have to switch or if you can try to go over or under the screen. Because, you know, switching, it's like the Celtics have have a pretty solid counter to putting Rozier on him, which is that scram switch that everybody's been talking about. And I've written about a few different times here during the series, which is that once Rozier is, you know, LeBron is posting up on Rozier and the ball's about to get passed into him, that the, whoever the big closest, bigger guy is will run over. Yeah, while Horford's the ball, been doing ball that a ton. Horford, Baines, Tatum, Brown, they've all done it. And it's always a better matchup than Rozier. And the problem is that when Rozier does that, the way it's set up is that he has to usually scramble all the way across the floor, run mm. what's what, I think 45 feet in the matter of like two seconds and find his man. And LeBron is such an amazing passer. He likes to keep his back to the basket when he's trying to pass because he's able to just kind of like fling a laser beam over the defender. <laughs> and he did that. I want to say five times in the game and was able to pick him apart. Uh, Cleveland uh, it, didn't it was convert so easy. But yeah, it was like it, the funny thing is it's, that's a great example of something that looks easy, and it is not. He's like the only guy in the NBA, pretty much, that can do that. <laughs> and LeBron makes it look effortless. He yeah. makes it look like it's, you know, like people. I think some people have been have maybe posited that the Celtics aren't as good as they look. It's that LeBron and KG's been doing it too. Those are like the only two guys in all of basketball that can make that play. So you know, the Celtics can run this type of defense against almost anybody and have pretty good success with it. Just LeBron beats it because he's the best player in basketball. And Warriors are up 11 now, so cutting away a little bit. 
But, yeah, it does help to have a guy like Durant and LeBron on your team. We're seeing that. There was a really good video you put in your article, too, that exhibited that play perfectly. So people do have to go over there and check that out if they're trying to learn a little bit more about these basketball schemes. If uh, the words aren't doing it for you, the writing might. So let's get to Aaron Baines because maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm out of my mind. But it seemed like when he was out there in game four, (laughs) he was impacting the game. And Cleveland's throwing size at you. You would have, you know, conventional wisdom would have told you that the Celtics maybe go big out of the gate in game four, if not game three, because things are working. Going into game three, stick with it. You lose by 30. Maybe adjust from there. I'm not I'm not smarter than Brad. I'm not going to pretend to be. But they lost the first quarter by more points than they did in Game 3, which is very telling to me. And Baines is only a minus one in the game, which relative to Game 4 isn't too bad with how badly they lost again. Do they need more Baines? Is he going to cut it for this series? Or is he just not a great matcher for this and he's staying away? Because I know the numbers don't speak kindly of him and Horford in lineups together. But visually to me, it looks like it could help out a little bit on Thompson and the trouble Horford's having. Actually, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought that the numbers were actually good with those two together. I'm going to have to double check on this one. But I seem to remember last game looking it up now when okay so horford and baines when they were on the floor together for 10 minutes and this was it was, the lineup was actually horford baines smart rogier this is strictly then, game four this is just game four yeah. and then brown and tatum was the fifth guy for half of each of those minutes they actually out they outscored cleveland 30 to 20 mm-hmm. and their offense was really really clicking there yeah so, i'm speaking of the playoffs as a whole i think they're about like set minus 70 to 80 those horford baines lineups but i might be wrong about that but yeah in game four it looked really good to me i think that you know baines is actually a pretty decent fit for the series i think that the celtics should give baines more opportunity to cover on the perimeter uh and try to force switches instead of rogier coming in there but pre-switch whomever is on rogier so that or whoever rogier is covering with baines so that baines is the guy covering there and then if lebron tries to pick up the switch there he's trying to go against baines i think baines can take lebron from from the perimeter i think it's better than i think you're better off using i mean they have to mix it up it's not like this is an only or thing it's that they're going to try a little bit of everything but i'd like to see brad try to get bane switched on to like george hill who's going to set the screen so that he's the one that's picking up lebron on the switch and let lebron try to take uh, try to get by him because Baines has shown pretty good agility on the perimeter. There's been a couple times where lebron tried to attack him and he was able to contain it yep. uh the you know, the thing is he's pretty um it's pretty easy to do a step back on him where you attack him with one dribble, then cross back and pull up. Yeah, I think but... <laughs> it's, a hard, it's a harder shot, frankly. But I don't think anyone in the world stopping that when those are falling, though. Exactly. I mean, that's that's fine. So uh, I would try that more. Mix, you know, still still do some of the scram switching with Rozier, but make it less predictable because, frankly, what makes what made or what allowed Cleveland to pick on that scram switch with Rogier and Rogier trying to chase back to the weak side and find somebody was that it was they knew it was coming, so they were able to set up their shooters on the weak side to take advantage of that. But if you keep mixing it up, then that's going to make it less predictable. Cleveland may not be set up in an arrangement around the three point line for you to have more for the Celtics to have more trouble closing out to everybody accurately. So I think that they didn't mix up their coverages quite as frequently as they had in the previous games and doing that more often being willing to take the risk of Baines being the one that picks up LeBron. I think doing things like that will allow them to have more success. 
Since we're on X's and O's, were you surprised to see the uh, zone breakout in this series? Because when I was going back and watching Game 3 and I saw that breakout, I was pretty stunned. I was what, I'm trying to remember when they did it. Because I remember last night somebody asked Brad if he went to zone. And he said, nope, we didn't go to zone. It um, looked like there was a Was play, it when Monroe was out there? Because they liked or, his, No, Baines was playing the middle of the court. Okay. They had two up top. And LeBron essentially faced up. Threw like a diagonal pass across the floor to Smith, I think it was, and threw a high screen. He just had a wide open shot. And maybe Baines was just playing the lane. That's what it looked like to me originally on LeBron help side defense. But the way it was organized looked like a 2-3 to me. So I don't know. Because <laughs> he, yeah, well, he, he did say no. I, th- I think – well, that was for game four. I, yeah. I don't remember paying attention to that in game three. But the thing is it's really – and I know you're you're at Syracuse, so you know you have a bias towards seeing zone. You can see zone in anything, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's it's kind of hard to, to – pre- or I guess to read what zone coverage is nowadays yeah. because the way that teams switch any sort of off-ball screen, that all looks like zone. But then you'll notice one guy is following someone. So the team can say that they're not in zone. Frankly, synergy – Every time you look at Synergy, it says that nobody ever ran zone ever. So yep. who knows how effective that would be. But it, it didn't seem to me like I was seeing much zone, but it could just simply be that Baines was passing off whomever so that he could stay like on the strong side block or something like that. I'm, I'm just going off of one play, too, so really not a big picture yeah. thing in this series. But a bigger picture going back to Boston is going to be Marcus Morris. And he was sensational on LeBron in games one and two. It was really the story of game one in particular, the way he slowed him down. What was he doing in those two games in that one-on-one matchup that made him so effective, you think? And where'd that go wrong in games three and four? I know it's a team defense against LeBron more than an individual matchup, but he had success in those matchups, and it just went the other way, it seems like. I mean, foul trouble was obviously a big part of it. Um you know, and that's not a surprise to see that, that, you know, physical defenders usually get called for less fouls when they're at home. It's a pretty, you know, natural thing that happens across the league. So that's not a huge surprise. I think really I feel a lot of it was just that LeBron seemed to have a pretty good read for how to attack Morris in these last couple games. And you saw, you know, in game three, he kind of had a feel for Morris's rhythm in the way that he moves and tries to, get into screens or try to get over or under screens. So That's he just feel out game was for, right? <laughs> exactly. It was a feel, it was a feel out road trip is what it was really. But, um, he, he had a really good command of knowing when Morris would be like shuffling one direction and then bam, he would just hit him with a crossover or a spin or whatever it was. So LeBron just seemed to know how to get by Morris a little bit more. And then, I think I think he has a better feel for how to handle Morris's unique brand of physicality. So, you know, I don't think Morris is doing a terrible job by any means. I mean, whoever whoever you put to guard LeBron face up is probably going to get embarrassed to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. I don't think Morris has been bad at all. He's what he did in game one and was or at least was like a part of accomplishing was massive. I mean, they that was huge to do that against LeBron. I mean, I expect LeBron to have 30 to 40 points every single game or get close to a triple-double every single game. He's with pretty solid efficiency shooting. I mean, I expect him to have a monster game. Anytime he doesn't have a monster game, that to me is considered an incredible defensive performance. So what do you expect the adjustment to be going into game five? Are we going to see that small ball lineup started again, or do you think we'll see Baines or maybe even Smart inserted into that as they try to bounce back? 
I think you put Shane Larkin in the screen in the sling, you treat him like John Havlicek, and you just have him go out there and dive all over the floor. I I thought that they should play smart more going into Game Four. They did, and I think it actually helped them defensively. I really I thought it, one thing that was pretty interesting that they tried was those turnovers to, though killed them. Yeah, I mean that that really killed them, and that's that's something that Marcus has that they have to you know talk that out of Marcus, but he defensively I thought was good in this game. I've heard a few people say they thought it was bad. I thought it was good that he, you know, there was one really bad like switch where he kind of like tossed J.R. Smith and then LeBron had a wide open three. They were communicating with Brugier. That one really stuck out. But what I liked that he was doing and Morris was doing this earlier in the fourth quarter, then smart later in the fourth quarter was they would pick up LeBron at half court and really make him fight to get over half court. More importantly, make him turn his back at, at like right around half court. And that just kind of disrupts all the rhythm to everything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Thompson would come up to set the pick probably higher than Cleveland wanted to. And they would switch over that pick where the, I, the pick wouldn't even really get used, but it would be that Spartan would treat. And then Ojale or whomever else was the other defender to cover LeBron would kind of just run up there and pick up LeBron 30 feet away. And that made things a little bit more tricky for LeBron. I think they should probably try to do that more. Just, you know, put more bodies on him higher, earlier, as much as you can. Try wearing him down early in the game like that because, you know, at that point in the fourth quarter, it's not going to be quite as effective as doing it earlier. But I thought that was a unique wrinkle that's smart. You know, if you have lineups out there where smart is out there instead of Rogier, it – it it doesn't hurt your dribble penetration a ton, but Smart's probably not quite as good at getting in there against this Cleveland defense as Rogier is. It just it hurts your floor. It hits, hurts your floor spacing a decent amount. You expect Rogier to hit those shots more than you expect Smart to hit them. But I think it definitely helps the defense a lot because you don't need to do. You know, Rogier is a really good defender, and he's been forced into a really unf- an unfair situation. I think he's doing as I think he's doing just about as well a job as he could in this really unfor- unfair situation to him. But Smart doesn't need that help in the bailouts that Rogier does yeah. quite at that same degree. So putting him out there instead of Rogier for some of these you know, big portions of the game, I think will allow them to get stops that they need to actually you know develop a rhythm and make some runs. All right, let's play prediction radio. I had Cleveland in seven from the start. I'm still feeling good about that, even though Boston has the home court and the undefeated record and all of that. We know what LeBron does in game sevens, and I'm very worried about that. Do you see the Celtics having a chance to win this series? I think it's a 50-50 at this point. I had Cleveland in seven coming into it, um, you know, based on, I think, how good the Celtics looked in those first two games. They won more easily than I expected, even in that second game, which really blew me away. Um, and it, the thing is, LeBron gets better as series goes on. The more the more he gets a chance to get a feel for the opponent, the better and better he gets, which I think takes away the advantage. But that's why I'll say it's 50-50. The Celtics have proven to have a really good home court advantage so far. So I think LeBron is that difference maker in that game seven that he can, you know, he can even out that home court advantage. So, I mean, if I, I'll stick with my pick, I guess, for now. I'll go with Cavs and seven because that's what I picked originally. And so far, while things have been, I think, a little bit more polarizing or chaotic than expected, both teams are pretty even, and LeBron's been pretty amazing, and I guess that's where I generally saw the series going. I think we'll all be happy as long as it's not another 30-point game. That's Jared Weiss on his way out of here now. Thanks, Jared. It's good to hear from you as always. Check him out at The Athletic and dish out the dollars so we can get uh, that whole Boston squad up and going now. 
Hey, it's only three bucks. Get everything that the Athletic has to offer. It's I was a subscriber before I started working for them, and I'm definitely still a subscriber now. That's 40 episodes of the Celtics Blog Podcast in the books. Can't thank you guys enough for all the support and listens, feedback, voicemails you've given us throughout the process. We're still figuring it out. Almost a year in, but I think we're getting there. And I want to especially give a shout out to Justin Rowan, who's been with us throughout this Cavaliers Celtics series. And I'm sure we'll hear from again once it's over. He's going through a tough time right now, so... I'm pulling for him, even though we go back and forth like brothers and can never seem to agree on much. Always enjoy talking to him, especially on this show here. So hopefully he'll be good, back, and ready to roll after game six, which is probably when you're going to hear us. The series will either be over for better or for worse, but unlikely because we're probably getting a game seven. So one, two more episodes before the season ends or the Celtics are on to the NBA Finals. Game 5 is pivotal. It's crucial. There's no need to expand on that. And that is where I'll leave it. I'm Bobby Manning. Thanks again, as always, for listening in. And check out CelticsBlog.com and CLNS Media for Game 5 coverage today, 8.30 at the TD Garden. Let's hope the Celtics bounce back after those two Cleveland games and prove me wrong again. Enjoy the game, everybody. Reunion Arena in Dallas, where the Mavs and Lakers are playing tonight, was built in 1980. Now, you couldn't ask for a better facility. It's easily accessible, has all the comforts of the theater, and there isn't a bad seat in the house. But for some reason, there are those who prefer the Boston Garden. Mostly those who wear Celtic green. What is so special about the Boston Garden other than the fact that it's a thousand years old? Let's take a look. First of all, a garden it's not. It's a train station, really. One flight up and you're on the fabled parquet floor. Now, before you get all misty-eyed about the parquet, take a closer look.